This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast making complex ideas easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today's topic is space in educational research. My guest is Marianne Larson, an associate professor at the Faculty of Education, University of Western Ontario. Dr. Larson's recent research focuses on the overall processes and effects of the internationalization of higher education. She has been researching how internationalization policies are taken up on the ground, as well as the role of higher education leaders in advancing internationalization agendas. Building upon her work on advancing new spatial theories in comparative education research, she is currently writing a book entitled Internationalization in Higher Education, New Spatial Theorizing. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Larson about how she and her colleague Jason Beach theorized the concept of educational space, not as an object of study, but as a set of relations between individuals and groups. Marianne Larson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Um, in one of your most recent pieces in the Comparative Education Review, um, you write about new spatial thinking in comparative ed. The ideas of space and place, they can be quite difficult concepts to grasp in educational research. Often educational place is thought of as sites in schools, and space is often this more abstract concept and more difficult to deal with. You take a slightly different approach than seeing space and place as objects. Um, How would you define space and the spatial for newcomers in comparative education? Thanks, Will. That's a really great question to start with. Um, Before I answer it, I want to thank and acknowledge Jason Beach. Um, Jason and I um, are co-conspirators in what we call our spatial interventions in the field of comparative and international education. So he was a co-author of the piece that you mentioned, and much of my thinking was influenced by conversations that I had with him across space and across time. He's based at the University of San Andreas in Argentina. So thank you, Jason. I'm going to go back to the question, what is space? And I'll try my best to answer it um, by pointing to a couple of, I don't know, key concepts or key ideas. One of them, and this is really what it is in a nutshell for me, is that space is that thing, that which is produced um, through social practices, through relationships, through how we relate or connect to one another. And in turn, the space that is created, it enables and constrains who we are, what we are, how we act, how we relate to one another. So I'm thinking about this very much so in the context of this interview, which is something new for me. I've never done a podcast before, and I've rarely used Skype. So right now, it's late morning for you over there in Tokyo, and it's late evening for me here in London, Canada. And there are a number of material objects that are connecting us. There's our computers, the program Skype, the microphone, all the other things that you sort of went over with me before the interview. And all of those technologies, they are enabling us to have a conversation, to have a connection, to um, to be related in this moment. And it is that space in between, that space in the interaction that is created through those technologies, through those material objects um, that, I, that I call space. And that space is what enables um, the creation of, of knowledge, of ideas, of, of what we call subjectivities and identities. So 
you know, I'm a little bit nervous, I admit. And so the space is actually shaping who I am and how I feel at this moment. And I'm assuming maybe for you that 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 space is also um, shaping and creating and forming you in a particular way. So that's that's some of my general broad ideas about space to start and, and with. so it's in this um, it's in the interaction where knowledge is produced. I mean that seems to be one of the key concepts uh, for relational spatial thinking. That is correct. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of the productive aspects of space? So I, I think the relational bit you really hit on in the last. Um, answer, but what what do you mean by productive aspects of space? Okay, so as with all my teaching, I try and use metaphors or analogies and stories to e- explain somewhat difficult concepts to, for my students. So I'll I'll try that here and see how it works, and you tell me if uh, if it helps to make sense. So the idea that I came across or was thinking about is about traveling. And, you know, taking a trip, for example, across Canada by train or by car, whatever vehicle it is, and I'm, I'm traveling across a landscape, and that landscape is alive. It, it's, it's filled with meaning. Um, it's filled with um, stories of people who have inhabited those spaces and still do today. And for, in the context of Canada and North America in general, this is really important to be thinking about. Um, with the indigenous people and the importance of the land uh, for their worldviews and their and their relationship with the land. So Doreen Massey, and she's one of the people who's influenced me greatly in my thinking about space, she talks about space as being cut through with the myriad stories in which we are living at any one moment. And through this, space gets connected in time. So the space of the land over which I travel, or potentially could travel, it it changes as I travel over it. And also I am changed by that very act of traveling, the mobility, um, by being mobile over that, over that landscape. So I don't know if you're aware of the recent um, protests or debates around the Keystone XL pipeline in, um, in Canada and the United States. I'll talk a little bit about it in case listeners aren't familiar with it. So Basically, the Keystone Pipeline system is an oil pipeline system within Canada and the United States, and it basically ships oil from the tar sands in northern Alberta through to Illinois, Oklahoma, and Texas. And that that part already exists. And the proposed Keystone XL pipeline was really the second part of, uh, of creating a new part of the pipeline between Alberta and Nebraska. And there were lots of protests in Canada and the United States about the, pot, about the pipeline. And those protests were firmly grounded in particular places and fears about the environmental impact of the pipeline on those places. For example, the Nebraska, um, there's a region in Nebraska called the Sand Hills region, and it's very environmentally sensitive. So what's significant here? is that if we take a spatial lens to kind of understand these protest movements, there's first of all the space that the actual, the physical space that the pipeline will occupy. And that space, um, there was responses to that space, that space of the, of the pipeline or the potential space of the pipeline being laid down on the land uh, created 
um, responses and and enabled people, disparate groups of people, landowners, conserva- uh, conservationists, environmentalists, ranchers, farmers, indigenous people to come together in ways that they had not previously come together around the changing space, potential changing space around them. So that potential space, or what we might call imagined space of the pipeline, um, produced something. It produced a, a movement. It produced a, a, a unified movement that uh, actually worked, because as we know, I think it was last week that Obama um, decided to reject the uh, Keystone XL pipeline through and because of the work of that movement. So can you bring this back to education then? So how, do, how does a relational sense of space and also a productive sense of space um, fit into education? Well, there's many ways to think about it. Some of the more traditional ways, um, you know, we're looking at classroom space and how the organization of the chairs and the teacher at the front pr- produces certain kinds of students and and identities and um, the subjugated student. We can, you know, we can even go back to some very early work around around that. I think a lot of the there's a lot of exciting work um, that engages with more contemporary notions around globalization that I think are quite relevant for educational research. So people who I've drawn upon that I that aren't educational researchers, but I think we can sort of take their ideas and, and pull them into the educational realm are Anat Singh and her work on frictions and um, Sexy Assassin. She's a geographer and she looks at the geographies of cities and how those connections are made locally and globally. In other words, the global is something that it comes into being only through how it's practiced in local settings. So what does it mean to talk about standardized testing well, we can only understand that by how it's taken up in in local settings, in uh, schoolrooms, classrooms, um, in countries around the world, and that that that's one way for us to be thinking about that relationship between the local and the global. And I, it's it's good you brought up this this distinction between the global and the local because. Oftentimes, they're seen as a binary. There's the global space, and then there's the local places. Um, And you and Jason, in another article, called this the spatial empire of the mind. And so perhaps understanding what you mean by the spatial empire of the mind could provide a good kind of counterpoint to the new spatial thinking that you are proposing or advocating. Um, So could you explain... Uh, maybe what the spatial empire of the mind is and how it relates to to globalization? Sure, happy to do that. It'll just take a couple of minutes to kind of walk walk through the uh, the what we call the spatial empire of the mind. Another word, and I think it's easy to substitute as meta narrative um, or a grand narrative drawing upon Leotard's um, work. So if we think about sort of this story, this grand narrative that's influenced so much social science research and quite a bit of globalization research today, it it basically starts with the idea that in pre-modern times, space and place coincided. So there were these, you know, small local societies and they were, 
you know, sort of just existed um, on their own and there weren't any flows of people or good or ideas or products or anything like that. Um, it was a very much a, a concealed and, and separate idea. And then according to the meta narrative, with modernity, we see a separation of space and place and um, sort of a tearing away of the two. Uh, others, some theorists talk about the dislocation of space from place, and that comes with um, colonization, the exploration of quote-unquote new, new lands, new regions of the world. And, and, and Europeans who headed up that project, you know, had the idea that these lands that they discovered were previously in a, a not, not habited by people or at least not... Um, you know, that they were discovering these lands, that they didn't exist before. So that whole shift um, that really go goes over a number of, of centuries from feudalism to modern capitalism uh, involved this idea of separating place, local places. And, and here I'm thinking, and Jason and I are thinking about place as the local and space as the global. So that, so the, the meta-narrative then continues with what space and place look like or the relationships, relationship between the two under or within globalization. And a number of globalization theorists talk about um, sort of the stretching out of place and space. Or also, and they also bring in the concept of time, and we haven't talked about time so much, so... Um, David Harvey talks about time-space compression, and Anthony Giddens talks about time-space distanciation. And they're all trying to um, get a, at the idea that there's like some kind of new connection and smoothing over um, of, the, of the surface or flattening out of the surface between space and place and, and time in there. But within that, and I'll just finish up here, um, is this still getting back to the idea that place is associated with the local and space is associated with the global and a lot of globalization research or researchers, and, and, and I think we've seen this within the field of comparative education, uh, study how uh, global processes, globalization, which is also often conflated with um, neoliberalism, and neo neoliberal economic policies, they influence primarily negatively local places like schools. So back to the, the um, example of standardized testing, it's seen as a global reform that is, you know, forced on these local places that are thereby changed by this global um, initiative, this global set of processes. And I think that's a bit problematic because the global isn't anything other than what is taken up in different locals. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about the, um, the manifestations of this, I guess you would say, the modern conception of space being separated from place within comparative education research? Well, Jason and I review a number of different ways that spatial theorizing has been, and I guess you could say can be taken up in the field of comparative and international education in our two articles. One of the earliest examples 
to my knowledge, is the work of Roland Paulston in mapping the space of comparative and international education. And he did that to um, elicit dialogue about the different paradigms and theories that influence our work. And then for me, Steve Carney's work stands out for his theorizing around flows and policyscapes. He draws upon the work of Apadurai. And there are other interesting um, examples of uh, research using spatial theories to examine the effects of pedagogy. I'm thinking of some researchers who have shown how different literacy practices are produced through time-space configurations, and some focus on the notion of the spatialization of knowledge as assemblages of human and non-human actors. That makes me think about actor network theory, actually. And I've noticed increasing um, numbers of articles and publications in our field that are turning to ANT, actor network theory, to problematize things like global education reform. So Jason Beach, Julia Resnick, and I read a really interesting piece recently in the Comparative Education Review by Marcella Milana on adult education. And I, I think that article of hers is a, a very quite a fascinating example of how spatial theorizing can help basically to overcome that local global binary that I talked about earlier. And then, and I'll try and conclude here, there's a lot of interesting policy work that draws on methodologies such as social and policy network analysis. Here I'm thinking of Stephen Ball's research on mapping the mobilities of edgy business policy relations. Oh, okay, one last thing for globalization SIG members. I would very much recommend Sexy Assassin's work um, because I think she does a, a good job in challenging us to think more broadly and spatially about what it means to study the global. And, and what of time in your approach? Um, how, how are you using new conceptions of time um, in this new spatial thinking? I knew you were going to ask me about time. So let's just say that I'm not or or. We are not suggesting to throw time out altogether. Um, I'm a historian. That's my background is as, as, as a historian within the field of history. And I think it's uh, incredibly important to engage with time. But I don't think um, it's helpful at all to be thinking about time in any kind of linear evolutionary way. And that, has, that way of thinking about time is characterized much of historical research, not not the more recent sort of transnational history, and a lot of comparative and international education research as well. So, you know, the standard example that's often used in the field is we think about the notions of developing and developed, and, you know, there's a linear path that countries can take over time to reach some kind of ultimate stage of being developed. And that's a really classical modernist approach. And and I, I wouldn't advocate, so to speak, um, using or thinking about time in that way. But, you know, time is, time is really abstract. And, you know, I'm thinking about space in really abstract ways. But it, they also are grounded in material practices. And I think that's how we need to think about the relationship between the two. Again, and I'm sorry for... Re- bringing her name up again, but she really has been influential in my thinking, Doreen Massey. She talks about space not being timeless and time not being spaceless, that they're 
they are different from one another, but you can't understand one without the other. So when we look at mobility, for example, there is, there is movement, there is movement over space, but that movement also takes place over time. So those, those three really need to come together in any kind of, I would say, rich new ways of thinking about the educational research that we do. You've given our listeners um, many different uh, authors to read and, and dig into to, to understand some of these ideas. How did you get involved um, in the ideas of space, place, and time originally? Well, in a roundabout way, as I often do, I started writing and I started thinking about and writing about creativity in our field a couple of years ago. And one of the uh, ideas that I put forward is that, and again, it's not just, these aren't just my ideas, but we need to read across disciplines and be interdisciplinary in our work and sort of get out of our bubbles and the paradigms within which we work. So I started to take a look at what was going on in the field of geography, and that's where I discovered a lot of this, uh, these ideas around new spatial theorizing. And I've mentioned the name of Doreen Massey, and there's lots of other people um, associated with that field, Edward Soha and, and others. Um, but, you know, so much of my work always goes back to Foucault. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Foucault really initiated the, the rethinking of this whole notion of, uh, of what space means and its relationship with time. So I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, and then, as I mentioned, some of the more recent work around the mobilities paradigm has been influencing my, my current thinking. So what have been some of the biggest surprises that you've uh, uncovered? Oh, um, well, you know, just going back to this idea about mobilities, just seeing those interconnections between the, the research that's been going on amongst those geographers that are focusing on mobilities uh, and immobilities. That's one of the things I haven't talked about here, but just leave that aside for a second, and the the spatial theorizing that's associated with some of the folks that I've mentioned already. I think it's really fascinating to to see how they they converge. Um, that being said, you know there's lo- there's lots of uh, ways that these ideas are taken up differently by different people. It's not one right reading. i I'm bringing to this discussion um, my interpretation, my way of thinking about some of these ideas. But, you know, they differ very much or in some ways from some of the other people associated with the with the new spatial thinking and paradigm, like Manuel Castells and um, David Harvey as well, who I've mentioned earlier. So, I think it's important to recognize that that the the field of of spatial thinking is diverse in and of itself. It's filled with lots of contradictions as well and 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 tensions. And I think we need to work through those in our research. Well, we look forward to your future research. And Marianne Larson, thanks for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. Marianne Larson is an associate professor at the Faculty of Education, University of Western Ontario. Her articles, co-written with Jason Beach on new spatial thinking, can be found in the 2014 spring issue of European Education and the May 2014 issue of Comparative Education Review. Next week, I speak with Professor Mark Bray about researching shadow education. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. 
If you want to highlight your research on Freshhead or give us feedback on the show, please email us at gesig.cies at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Like what you heard on the show today? Please be sure to review and subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.